The Old Testament passage for today is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, and we'll be reading verses 31 through 34. Please give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. He says, I will put my law within them and will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? For they shall all already know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The New Testament reading for today, and also the passage for exegete, is Romans 8, verses 1 through 17. Again, please give ear to the reading of God's holy word. There is therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. No. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. The title for this sermon today is, The Holy Spirit is Pretty Darned Important! (laughs) Exclamation mark. Join with me in prayer. Father, you are holy, you are right, and you are truth. We thank you for giving us truth in writ. 
Father, we so desperately need to examine what you've provided for us hour by hour, day by day, week by week. But Father, more so do we delight to be called once a week by you to come and worship you. What an honor that is. Father, as we struggle through this day and this entire week, let us know that we began this new week in your work and in your word. Be with us now. Forgive us for our sins. All for the glory of Christ Jesus in his name. Amen. Christians today don't seem to really want to talk about the Holy Spirit. They're afraid they're going to be called charismatics or something. I don't, I don't know what the real reason is, but it seems that when even, even some of us nerds like Joe and myself get together, yeah, you're in there with me, uh, we start talking about Christ, we start talking about the Father, we start doing, and it's, it's almost like we just dust upon the Holy Spirit and move past Him so as not to spend too much time talking about the Holy Spirit to get ourselves in trouble. I, I wish it wasn't that way. I think that it's, there is a proper way to speak about the Holy Spirit, and we ought to regularly. Is that fair? Okay. I want us to begin looking at today's text first by just taking an airplane's view of the passage. This was in my notes because I'm going to be on an airplane for the first time in uh, a couple of weeks, and I'm pretty freaked out by it. So I noticed when I went over my notes again this week, I had about 12 references to an airplane that I had to cut out. So this probably is the only one left. So, But an airplane's view, a high-up view of this text, we can see clearly that the Apostle Paul is reminding us, brothers and sisters in the Lord, that we are all sinners by nature and by choice. We're sinners by nature and by choice, and that we are enslaved by our sin, that we are condemned by the law which is exposed by our sin, and that we are absolutely and utterly powerless to escape it all without the redemptive work of Christ Jesus, our King. Knowing that it took the saving work of Christ to free us from such a depraved reality is only one part of the story, though. In Romans 8 here, we see Paul adding to our understanding that Christ was, is, and will always be working in and through His Spirit for us. Again, this part of Paul's address here is already assuming that you have a foundation and a knowledge and an understanding that Christ redeemed you. He's moving beyond and adding with that understanding these verses. So Romans 8, 1 through 17 isn't, again, trying to emphasize the work of Christ for our redemption per se, but rather Paul is revealing to us that Christ uses the Holy Spirit to minister to us continuously, minister to us continuously through our redemptive process and all the way home to glory. I think it's um, often uh, forgotten sometimes, sometimes on purpose, that we are redeemed, yes, but we are continually being redeemed. We are continually being transformed and shaped into the image of Christ our entire life. It doesn't stop. We didn't, we didn't profess Christ as our king, and then uh, we've arrived. 
I don't know about you, but I've lost count of how many times I've sinned this morning. We are sinners, and we need Christ, and we need the redemptive work of the Holy Spirit in us consistently and constantly. Well, he does this. He works the Holy Spirit through us in many ways. But for the sake of time and this selected text, I will focus on just three main ways that Christ ministers to us through the Holy Spirit. Christ ministers to us through His Holy Spirit by way of regeneration, by way of Christian focus, and by way of assurance. So let's look at our first part here, which is centered around the first four verses of Acts chapter 8. This points out the often overlooked ministry of the Holy Spirit through the act of regeneration itself. But before we can even get into verse 1, before we can even dive in and read these first four verses, we need to acknowledge that we, are all, we were all spiritually lifeless at one point. We were dead in our trespasses outside of Christ. We had no interest in God, nor were we headed in His direction by anything found within us. Contrary to popular demand and belief, we did not choose God, but He chose us. We should not be afraid to, stay, to say things so boldly, for it's only pride in us that says, I choose my salvation, and that's the pride that must die. And we must stand boldly and say, I wasn't deserving at all, and he still chose me? Wow, God is awesome. We were not about our daily business in some way and somehow stumbled across God either. We didn't find him in our life. And he then said, oh, well then I, I must save you now that you've found me. For emphasis sake, I'm going to bring up John 6, 37 through 40. Just, just listen to this if you can. It says, all that the Father gives me, this is our Savior speaking, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is then the will of him who sent me. What is it? That I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him on the last day. Well, that's pretty clear. It's pretty clear that you are given to the Son by the Father. You didn't find the Son by yourself. You are also shown by this that you are kept by the Son. I think that's a very important thing that we ought to remind ourselves often too. I had uh, an influx of two families into my church recently that were stunned, stunned and perplexed when I said from the pulpit that you cannot lose your salvation. What a life of fear those families had. And were taught consistently that if they just were not good enough or if they sinned just one more time, Christ was going to abandon them. That is filth, and that is horridness coming from somewhere. I don't know where. 
But we need to recognize by this passage and by many, many more that not only was it the will of the Father to predestine us to be alive, but also the will of the Father to elect us unto salvation through Christ Jesus. Moreover, to persevere us by the power of Jesus Christ, not by our own hands and will. That's who we are. I I couldn't imagine living without that truth. So again, this passage shows us that uh, the Son, everything is given to the Son by the Father and that we are kept by the Son. But now we're going to pull into the how this is done and why we're exploring that in these verses today. How does, does this drawing happen? How does this giving them happen? How does this not losing them happen? How does this raising them, how does it all take place? Well, it all takes place through the Holy Spirit. The Father does the electing, the Son does the saving, and the Holy Spirit applies it to all of us. Titus 3 says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Boy, that's a cheery statement, isn't it? Hating one another. Verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by, let me say this again here, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So not only did Christ pay for our sins on the cross, He then elevated us to family members by pouring out His risen Spirit onto and into us. Wow, what love. So putting this all together here, we can see that we were once all foolish orphans, the elect who were yet to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The Father chose to have His Son pay the price for our foolishness. And the Holy Spirit was then tasked with applying the result thereof to us, making us no longer orphans, but sons and daughters, heirs according to promise. This is known as regeneration and therefore adoption. As a result result of this regenerative act, by God, for our sake, we can now read verses 1 through 4. You see, verses 1 through 4 is not meant for everybody. It's meant for you, those who are of Christ's kingdom. It's not meant for those outside those doors that don't know Christ or don't know Him yet. This is food, nourishment, and love for you, the struggling saint. Verse 1 through 4 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's you. There's no condemnation. Even though you often will condemn yourself for sinning too much. This is, from a throne's view, what the truth really is. There there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law, what you guys all lived under prior to Christ, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law does not bring righteousness, does it? It brings forth our wickedness and puts it right in front of our face. But it can't do anything about it, can it? We need something else. We've always needed Christ. It says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for the purpose of sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law that none of us could do might be fulfilled in us, not by our own hands, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit that he's poured into and onto us. That is regeneration, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit put forth by Christ for us. So now that the regeneration portion of our redemption has taken place, what now? What now? What's, what's the next part? Okay, I'm regenerated. I, I, am, I was once dead. I'm now alive. I'm faithing. I'm repenting. Amen. What now? Well, verses 5 through 13, he then lays out the what now. It's the paradigm of the Christian walk. So again, verses 5 through 13, I'm going to be talking for a few minutes before we even read it to shape our mind's eye. Verses 5 through 13 directs us to the Holy Spirit's ministry of Christian focus. Christian focus. Now, before we look at the Spirit's role in our Christian focus, let's be reminded that the flesh is always present this side of glory. You may say, Pastor, you don't need to remind me that my flesh is present this side of glory. Well, I just I wanted to anyway. The flesh demands pleasure from us, doesn't it? The flesh demands pleasure from us and is completely selfish. When does your flesh desire something for someone else? It doesn't. Your flesh is completely selfish, even down to a cellular level. Everything about the flesh wants pleasure and desires survival at any cost. We have a few phrases for this, such as self-esteem and self-preservation, that highlight this thing that is in all of us. However, the flesh, the, the, the flesh is simply the car in need of a driver, if you will, for a, uh, a metaphor. This is where the spirit comes in. As we move forward, I want you to please keep in mind that both saved and unsaved have the flesh that I just described. Yes, you belong to Christ. Your flesh hates that. That's the truth. And you have the same flesh as anybody else outside those doors. Anybody else anywhere, you guys share in that one thing. You have a flesh that rebels against its creator. What I do want us to notice, though, as we move forward... There is a difference, though, between us and them, and that's which spirit is driving the car. It's the best way I could put it for you. When we think of the word focus here, it really points to an understanding of a mindset, not a visual set, a mindset. Our focus is in one way, and I want you to be thinking about it in the situations uh, as they arise here. So Paul intended for this purpose too when he compares over and over the next few verses, setting the mind on the flesh versus setting the mind on the spirit. And we'll get into that in a moment. But he does this back and forth, back and forth. The mind is focused by the spirit. 
not by the flesh. The mind is focused by the spirit. It is driven and it is consumed by the spirit's desire to glorify the Savior. Their flesh and our flesh is driven by a spirit, and that spirit's desire is to drive us to the glorifying of a Savior. Now, this is where things get a little scary. Because not every spirit is holy, and not every promised Savior is Christ. Therefore, whatever spirit indwells you dictates your mindset, and whatever spirit takes the wheel drives you to the destination that it desires. The spirit of the flesh, as we'll dub the bad spirit here, is one of hate, one of malice, one of envy, strife, and selfishness. It's the me-first spirit. It's hungry and it demands obedience and submission. Its voracious appetite is all-consuming if unchecked. Even when it is acting passively, being generous even, it still has a motive of selfishness and self-glory. Now before anyone says it, I'll just go ahead and head it off here. Those who are going to hell, yes, they can appear to still do really good things here on earth. That's got to count for something, right? It's got to. It's got, God's got to take it into account. Well, the problem with that viewpoint is that the person's good works are based on our declaration that they are good because they please us. Wow. When we look at verse 8 in a moment, we'll see a different declaration of their works based on God's view of the situation. He says those who are in the flesh cannot please God, even if they build an orphanage and feed one million starving children in Africa. Why? Simply put, they are still guilty of violating God's law. I call this the Al Capone syndrome. Al Capone, are we familiar with Al Capone? Okay, Al Capone, um, you know a lot about him, but did you know that he, he uh, fed the orphans? in his city, and that he built a couple of these little libraries for people to learn how to read, and he took care of the widows. He did a lot of cool stuff, but he's a murderer, right? It doesn't change the fact that he's still guilty of murder, does it? When he went before the judge, the judge didn't say, well, you have built a, an orphanage and a, and a library. All right, let's just forget what you did. Get out of here. No, he was guilty and had to pay for that. Now, he didn't ultimately go to jail for that, so, but you get the point that I'm trying to get at here. So that's how God sees it. God sees all of these people out in the world that are not elect for heaven. He sees them as being constantly and perpetually guilty. Likewise, he sees us as being constantly, perpetually pardoned. Not innocent, for who among us is innocent? None. I sin, you sin, we're guilty of it, but the declaration is pardoned. Amen. No matter how good the person is in our eyes, though, if they are not chosen by the Father, covered in the blood of the risen Savior, and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, nothing they do is good in God's eyes because the Spirit at the wheel driving the efforts is not holy. The glory they are pouring out is not Godward, and the Savior they are pointing to is not Christ. They are, according to verses 7 and 8, 
They have no ability to even understand Christ. They are offended by Christ, and their mindset testifies which spirit indwells them and directs them. Therefore, their works cannot be deemed good by a just and holy God. Now, can it? If it was deemed good, what would that say about our works then? Sometimes you shall know them by their fruits, yes, but all the time he searches the hearts and minds of us all. He knows who is truly good and truly bad, even if we are fooled from time to time. Now, thank God there's another spirit than the one I just described, because that spirit's horrible. There's the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, that God promised would come and dwell with his people after Christ's death and resurrection in an unrestrained manner. I heard uh, Brother Joe, as I walked in this morning, talking about how our, our sin is restrained. And, and it just it made me happy to hear him say that because it highlights the fact that uh, if we look at things before the flood, that was unrestrained sin. And it only took a few generations for it to be so bad that God had to drown everybody. So if he didn't restrain our sin, how bad would it really be? Now you look at the world around you and you think, dear God, this is restrained? Yeah. That's scary, isn't it? That is restrained sin. Well, likewise, prior to Christ ascending, the Holy Spirit in his work was restrained. But when he ascended, he pours out his Holy Spirit and it just hits the world like a bombshell. Remember uh, uh, Acts, right? The whole deal there? Okay. <clears throat> now, for the purpose of, uh, of the Spirit here in, in uh, uh, looking at the Holy Spirit now, this purpose, His purpose is to drive our mindset as well, not simply the purpose of, of an evil spirit or a fleshly spirit to drive the mindset of the lost, but we have a spirit who's driving our mindset as well. He's driving our focus away from the demands of the flesh and toward the will of God, toward Christ, the true Savior. Now, though the flesh still desires pleasure and preservation, this spirit directs the mindset towards truth, toward the real joy maker and the real life preserver, not the fraudulent one, the spirit of the flesh promises and presents. I said this uh, a few months ago when I was working through some other passages. I said, you know, if drugs and alcohol weren't fun, nobody would do them, right? It's a promised joy that's being offered that is fraudulent. We're to look past that fraudulent joy to the real joy maker and see the joy that he intends for us to have, which is not those things. And our way of looking past what the world so, so wonderfully hands to us constantly is to look through a mind's eye and a vision that with eyes that are open and ears that are open because of the Holy Spirit to look past that foolishness and that fraudulency and look towards the truth that is being offered to us daily. This Spirit drives us towards Christ continually. He changes our focus on earthly treasures and toward those we ought to store in heaven. He drives us toward the law of Christ through conviction and reassurance, constantly guiding us as Christ's voice in our walk. 
Christ sent us the helper so that we don't have to do this alone, friends. I want you to take a moment and I want you to think. I want you to think just how many times a day you need nudged, prodded, reminded, convicted, or encouraged. I mean, just think about it. Throughout the day, how many times you hear something like, don't do that, don't look again, don't touch it, stop, red alert, right? Everything in my mind is Star Trek, by the way, so... So, red alert, you know, I hear that all the time. So, countless times throughout our day, we face this reality where we have this nudging, this prodding, this encouraging, this loving going on inside us, trying to to take our eyes and our mind and our thoughts and our ears away from the fraud and towards the real. We need this constantly throughout our day to change our focus away from the desires of the flesh and its voracious appetite and toward Christ, the real manna. So the Apostle Paul in these verses really points out that our daily lives are to be spent listening to the Spirit's directing, its constant ministering to us to focus on Christ and not the fraud and not focusing on the demands of the flesh. He also points out that it's the spirit of life that enables us to do this more often than not. Do not think that the spirit will be working apart from your free will, though, because he will not. But your free will is encouraged one way or the other by what and who you choose to surround yourself with. Young ones in the church, my daddy used to say, you are who you run with. Garbage in, garbage out. And then when he saw some of the unsavory friends I had, he leaned in and he said, you're going to run with wolves, boy, don't bleed. Boy, what wisdom that I had no idea what he was saying. <laughs> it's bizarre sayings that my dad would say, right? I just go, okay, dad, love you, right? <laughs> I get it now. I understand now what he meant by that, you know, but... It's true, we have the spirit inside of us that is directing our thoughts towards God, but we still have free will to run around the entire backyard of the elect you know, property that we've been put in. And we can choose to hang out with people that do not have the same spirit we have. Well, then you don't have the same motives to do anything that you're doing that day. You don't have the same motives to eat lunch. There is nothing you're doing that is with the same motive and heart as those people. But you can also choose to be with fellow strugglers, fellow strugglers, fellow sojourners in a foreign land, right? Fellow saints that have the same spirit in them, that that struggle with the same things you do. You can choose to be with them. It might be a better choice. Now, Paul here is encouraging you to be at work constantly and actively by listening to the directing of the Spirit that He placed in you. Because it will guide you toward decisions that lead to peace and life over and above those that lead to death and despair. Now let's look at verses 5 through 13. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind is set on the flesh, and it is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, I love this, it cannot, it cannot submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. He doesn't want to take for granted that he may be speaking to some out there who are not part of the kingdom. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, he says. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, or to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But we are debtors if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you then will live. Wow. Wow. He then moves from talking about being regenerated, then the Christian focus, the walk of our life. He then moves the narrative over to how do we be assured of this when we're bombarded by lies all day long? How are we assured? We become weary sojourners sometimes. It happens. So verses 14 through 17, Paul focuses on the absolute truth of our salvation and declares that it is actually the ministering work of the Holy Spirit that enables us to even believe in it. Enables us to even believe in it. This is known as assurance. So in these last few verses, Paul reminds us, plain and simple, that we belong to God. We are assured of this truth by the inner working and ministering of the Holy Spirit. We are not orphans, but are sons and daughters. And we do not possess the power within ourselves to change that reality. Hmm. And God is not a liar. So since He promised this future, this future heavenly reality to us, He is sure to make it so. Consequently, he is also to make sure that those destined for door number two will get there as well. Oftentimes we, we forget that there's something called double predestination. God, God did not elect us to go to heaven and just says, well, everybody else, I don't know where they're going. Whatever. No. No man left behind. You get door one or you get door two. And it's all by God's choosing. Amen? How then are we to be reassured then of this truth today? Because how many churches out there promote the exact opposite view of what I just said? It's called fear theology. How many of these, these churches out here, well, quote-unquote churches out there, um, are, are saying and feeding Doritos to the people instead of a well-balanced meal? How healthy are the people then? Not very healthy. I can tell you I have a teenage son. But Doritos and Dr. Pepper. 
It's like vitamins to that kid. I don't know what it is. He's unhealthy. I tried to take him to the gym. He couldn't even walk on the treadmill for five minutes with me. And he is skinnier than I am. Okay, I'll get off the rabbit trail. Sorry. So how are we going to be reassured of this truth, both that we are going to heaven and that God's justice will be done on those who are persecuting us right now, either directly or indirectly? I went, I went down the 60 freeway. They've removed the billboard now, but uh, it, it made me almost weep in my car. It said, love God but hate the church? We did too. I said, wow. That's like saying, hey, do you love me but hate my wife? Come on over for dinner. <laughs> Isn't it exactly the same? Right? But, I mean, and so you're looking at that thinking, do you realize what you're saying? You probably don't realize that you're saying that. That's why you paid all this money for this billboard. What else do you not realize you're saying and are feeding to the people in your care? Wow, scary stuff, isn't it? So it's not just simply the false narrative that's out there by those who are perishing, but it's also the false narrative that's out there by those who are not equipped to give truth to the saints. Yes, it takes learning. Joe went to school for a long, long time. Long time. He went to school for a very long time to learn what he knows. Let me tell you something. When I was sitting back there, when I came in, when he was doing is that a Bible study you do every morning? Sunday school, right? Uh, I sat down and I just listened to my homeboy here just break it down. I was like, go Joe. Right? I mean, because it was, he was, you could tell he didn't even have to think about it. It was just rolling out of his mouth. Why? Because it's in him. He spent the time in the trenches learning it. And that's what you get the benefit of every single week. He doesn't have to have, you know, these, these things that, you know, he parachutes into the pulpit with streamers and, you know, rock concert and all this stuff. He doesn't need it. Why? Because his mouth is the rock concert. He's given you the biggest joy you, you can have. Christ professed and presented. Amen? So again, how are we to be assured of the truths that we hear come from Joe, that we hear come from other pastors? How? Well, Christ has provided a way through his preaching, primarily, but he's also provided a way through the sacraments. Each Lord's Day, we hear Christ preached boldly, and we have Christ presented to us. Each time we take communion, the Spirit causes us to be spiritually caught up into heaven and dine with and on Christ our Savior, feasting on all the results of His sacrifice for our behalf. This is spiritual food needed for a spiritual fight against the flesh. Without this food, we are in serious trouble. Now, I'm assuming whenever I say things like feast on Christ, your Catholic radar goes off, and some people go, what did he just say? I, I, it's okay, I'm going to explain. Well, I'm not going to explain. Let's let Jesus explain. John 6, John 6, verses 48. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. John 6, verses 48 through 65. 
I'm going to give it a second for us to find our place there, because I really think our eyes need to see what Jesus has to say about this. So as you're finding it, let me just build the scene for us real quick. Jesus had just fed the thousands with loaves and fishes. They were hungry, and he did a miracle and fed their flesh. The next day, these people go and try and find him. Why? Because they're hungry. It's, it's that simple. They're hungry. Oh, hey, let's go get some bread and fish again, like yesterday. We had as we could handle. And so they go and they find him, and they're basically, uh, what time's lunch? And he says, I'm going to build something now with you. Just as you were full, nourished, and satisfied yesterday when I fed you, your flesh was, let me present a different kind of food to you that will make you full, nourished, and satisfied in your spirit. I only did this yesterday with you to highlight what I'm about to tell you right now. Listen to what he says. John 6, verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and guess what? They died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. What bread? Him. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What's he talking about here? He's talking about his sacrifice. His flesh is the manna. His sacrifice is the bread that we must feast upon. The Jews then, disputing among themselves, said, uh, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's a fair question, right? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue and as he taught it at Capernaum, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, oh, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Like, I don't, I don't even know what to do with what he just said. I, I, I just don't, I mean, th this would be weird to hear, wouldn't it? It'd be like, what is he saying? Everything he's been doing is, is so good and so right. And so, I've been watching him, you know, do all these miracles. Now he's telling us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. What? But it's, it's, the more he teaches and the more he speaks to them, the more they start to realize what he's saying here. My blood in my flesh is what actually came down from heaven. Wasn't he born here on earth? Then what came from heaven? His deity, right? His holiness, his godness. He's saying, my flesh is not this in and of itself. His flesh is not those crackers and juice or wine. It's not that. That's just crackers and juice. But as tangible as that is on your tongue is as real as you should be assured of the salvation that he's delivered to you on the cross. 
It's also a foretaste of a much bigger piece of bread and much more wine to come. Now he says in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at what I just said? Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. He said, I'm talking to you in spirit talk here. Eat my flesh spiritually. Drink my blood spiritually. Not physically. If, if it were physically, then it would save the flesh. But he says, the flesh can't help you at all in this situation. It's your spirit that does this. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Then the, uh, the writer notes here, for Jesus knew from the beginning uh, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. In verse 65, he says, And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. It is by this regular act of communion. Do you take communion weekly? Yes. Amen. I thought so, but I thought I would say, ask you. For I should have asked you before we started, huh? Yeah. That would have been weird and awkward, huh? So uh, it's, it's by this regular act of communion that we are most adequately assured of the promises found and preached to us in Scripture. Without this regular divine conversation involving, of course, the breaking of bread with Christ, the head of our family, we would be malnourished in the fight that waits for us out those doors, and we would succumb to the flesh more and more. This is just a fact of life. I, I want everybody to put this to the test. Has everybody had breakfast? Huh? Have you had lunch? Why don't you skip lunch, dinner, and breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the next, like, month. Who's down? Come on, who wants to do it? Anything? And then, about week three, I want you to go pick a fight with somebody. This is going to be over quickly, isn't it? Because you're, you're not physically nourished enough to do it, right? What do you think happens to your soul when you do not eat regularly? You become malnourished. And you're going to go out those doors, and because you live for Christ, guess what? You're already picking a fight. And you're going to lose that fight more often than not because you're malnourished. So never forsake the sacraments, please. Hear the word. Be nourished by the sacraments. So now I'm going to read verses 14 through 17. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, wherein we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. He ends this section here in a perfect way by assuring us that everything he just said is truth. He assures us as we 
we look to the world around us, as we look to our employers, as we look to family members that don't know Christ maybe, as we look to all of this and we, we may be saying, why does it seem like they don't have any problems? Why does it seem like they're always having fun? Why does it seem like I'm always in a fight somewhere and I've got to tell myself no rather than yes more often than not? Christianity doesn't seem fun. Why is this the case? Well, be assured that you are being transformed to the image of Jesus Christ, which is much better than the image of the world that everybody else is trying to transform you into. Be assured of that truth. And at times, don't be afraid to say, Father, I believe. Help my unbelief. I'm, I'm weakened right now. It's in your weakness that he is strong. That's not something to be ashamed of. It's not. Know that your heirs according to promise because he said so. Know that your heirs according to promise because his son bled so. And know that your heirs according to promise because the Spirit lives in you and applies it directly to you. Join with me in prayer. Father, you are amazing. We don't really have words to describe our adoration for you. But we do the best we can. And so we say once more, you are amazing. Judge our hearts and seek our minds, Father, to know what our spirit really is crying out to you. The truth behind our love for you, our appreciation for you. Oh, Father, you've put your spirit in us to speak for us to you because we are so ill-equipped in our linguistics to do so. Father, we are thankful that you have not left us orphans, but you have adopted us. We are thankful that you call us sons and daughters. We are thankful that you sanctify us, never punishing us, but sanctify us throughout our life to grow us and mold us. Oh, Father, we can tell your love by your sanctification. Let it rest in us as peace and comfort by the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, so that we can be assured of that truth. Be with us now as we go out into that world, Father. As we drive home and we see the billboards, we hear the promises on the radio, the commercials on the TV, the conversations at work that all offer something better. Let us know it is a lie. It is a lie and it is fraud. That there is nothing better than you and what you've provided for your children. In the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake do we beg thee. Amen.